We're going to be looking at verses 35 through 52 this morning. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? This is a question that Jesus asked three individuals during his earthly ministry. These three individuals came to Jesus either making a request of him or calling on his name. And when they came to him, he asked them this question. What do you want me to do for you? Each of us here, we also make requests of Jesus or we call upon his name. In quiet moments, in stressful moments, in successful moments, in fearful moments, in uncertain moments. What do you want Jesus to do for you? How would you answer that question? This morning we're going to take a look at these three men who asked Jesus this, these three men that Jesus asked this question to. What do you want me to do for you? So if you have your Bible, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus said to them, and Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slaves, a slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when they came to Jericho, and, as he was, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the side of the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprung up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to, said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go away, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on his way. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to your truth, your scriptures, please move my pride aside. 
my want for glory aside, my desire to be praised by man aside, and allow your spirit to move in spite of me, that he would speak through me, that he would take these words and pierce my heart. He would take these words and pierce the hearts of the people that's here. You know what we need to hear. You know what we're dealing with. You know what we're hiding. You know how we're pretending. And so I pray that you give us what we need today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. These three individuals all approach Jesus, wanting his attention. On the one hand, you have two disciples coming to Jesus. And on the other hand, you have a blind beggar. And Jesus asked him this, this question, what do you want me to do for you? First, let's take a look at the two disciples. Now, many of you know that Jesus had 12 of them, men he chose to call to follow him. And within the 12, he also had an inner circle that included three, James, John, and Peter. And here in Mark 10, you have the two brothers approaching Jesus for a purpose of making a request. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And notice, none of the other disciples were included in this request. It was just the two brothers. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to set one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Wow. The message, Bible says, arrange it so that we can be awarded the highest places of honor in your glory. So what do you make of this request? It was one for status, privilege, power, attention, wealth. Their requests also show they had a misunderstanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus came to earth to do. This phrase, in your glory, used by James and John, is a reference to, to Jesus' earthly reign. It's a reference to, to him coming to defeat the Roman establishment and to establish his earthly kingdom after he defeated the Romans. Early in his ministry, all 12 of the disciples thought he was a political messiah who was going to come and defeat the Romans and set up his earthly kingdom. And so after Jesus became king, these two men wanted to make sure that they got their part. They wanted to make sure that they will get these seats of preeminence granted to us, arrange it, stressing the urgency behind their request. Why was it urgent? It's 12 disciples with only two seats. Can't have many people sitting on your right and left, only two people. So the two disciples, the two brothers, were scheming. They wanted to make sure that when Jesus got his throne, that they, they would be the ones at his right and left hand. Not enough room for 12 of them. They were thinking ahead. They were planning. They weren't those seats for themselves. Because if you're sitting at the king's right and left hand, guess what? All of a sudden, you're important. All of a sudden, you're not a nobody. All of a sudden, you have status, power, access, things you never had before. All because you are part of the king's cabinet, part of the royal court. Hey, Jesus, we're your number one supporters. So 
So don't forget about your boys <laughs> when you become king. Their little plan was shady, but you know it didn't go unnoticed because the other ten found out. The text says when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John, meaning they were resentful and angry. Why? Because it was unfair, but also because they beat them to the punch, probably. Because <laughs> they probably weren't the same thing. Those seats of honor in Jesus' earthly kingdom. I hope you notice that what they were asking Jesus was totally man-centered and self-serving, not Christ-centered. And the disciples' response, the other ten's response, was self-centered and man-centered as well. When I was writing this sermon, I was convicted because there are times when I get angry at, 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 at those pastors who are labeled celebrity pastors. And I ask myself, why do I get upset? Is it because, is it a righteous anger or is it because they have what I don't have? Is it because they have a label that I want? And a lot of times my anger comes from the fact that I desire the label and don't have it. And I believe in all of us, there's a desire to have what James and John asked Jesus for. Because we misunderstand who Jesus is. We want a celebrity Jesus. A celebrity Jesus. That when I get close to him, I'm going to have celebrity status too. I'm going to sit at his right and left hand. I'm going to have privilege. I'm going to have access. I'm going to have power. I'm going to have status. And my celebrity, Jesus, is going to make it all possible for me to live the celebrity lifestyle. There are Christian Christian versions of that. We just spiritualize it to make it sound biblical. But Jesus is not a celebrity messiah, nor is he a political messiah. He's much more than that. Much more than that. And his response shows us. Verse 38. Jesus says, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said, We are able. It's obvious that they approach Jesus in a self-serving way. But notice that Jesus' response didn't go into the direction of their motives, but it went into the direction of their misunderstanding of him. James and John did not understand what they were asking for. They did not understand the path Jesus had to go to get into his glory. It wasn't a parade. Was it a parade? No. Was it people throwing rose petals at his feet? No. The question asked him, are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Those two questions are metaphors to the path that Jesus had to go to to enter his glory. Man, his cup and his baptism was not going to be some great battle with the Romans, but it was a reference back to what he told the disciples in verses 32 and 34. What did he tell them? He says, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man 
will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. That's the path to his glory. That's the path to his glory, to the sufferings of the cross. Not an earthly war. His cup was a cup of suffering. His death was a death of baptism. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, was getting ready to bear the wrath of God for the sins of the world. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to earth, took the form of a servant, and freely offered up his life. It wasn't taken from him now. He freely offered it up. Make no mistake, they didn't take his life. He freely gave it as a ransom for many. And think about that. He gave his life as a ransom. A ransom is paid in order to release someone who's caught up in something, someone who's in bondage. God forbid it. But if any one of our kids were ever kidnapped, we will pay whatever we got to pay. We go into, I don't know how much debt to get up that money to get them back. We'll mortgage our house ten times over to get that money to get our child back. And we do that for our sons and daughters. Jesus did that for his enemies. For his enemies. For his enemies. For his enemies. He ransomed his life for those who said crucify him. Powerful. Life-changing when you understand that. When it goes here. Not just in my head, but in my heart. Memorial Day is a, a day of remembering men and women who die while serving in our United States Armed Forces. And each Memorial Day, there, you know, the gravestones at Arlington National Cemetery are decorated with U.S. flags. You know, it's a way for us to remember and show gratitude for those who die while serving our country and protect, protecting the freedoms and the way of life we all enjoy as Americans. And many times we, we enjoy our freedoms and liberties and way of life blindly because we forget that all those things we enjoy we're not free. We're not free. It came with a price. For some it was a life. Others it was a limb. Loss of a spouse. A parent. A child. Many sacrifices have been made so that we Americans can enjoy being Americans. And the same is true when it comes to Jesus. He sacrificed much. So he's not a celebrity messiah. He's not a political messiah. He's a sacrificial messiah who died as a substitute in your place to pay off your sin debt. So every day is Memorial Day for the believer because you always remember what Jesus did for you in your place because it could have been you on the cross. Your payment. His life for your life. What do you want Jesus to do for you? 
He already did it. What do you want Jesus to do for you? He already did it. But do you believe it? Do you embrace it? Is it in your heart? He's already done it on the cross. So when we approach Jesus, when we understand the gospel as believers and we embrace it, so we, not, we never approach him out of self-centeredness or self-serving ways. We approach him out of need, out of neediness, out of weakness, just like the blind beggar here who saw his need. And Mark, he makes a contrast between the disciples' approach to Jesus and Bartimaeus' approach. He was a blind beggar sitting on the side of the road. He cried out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. People tried to stop him from doing it. People tried to rebuke him. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Not, son of David, let me sit beside you in your glory. Son of David, have mercy on me. He was calling out to Jesus in his, in his brokenness, in, 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 his, in his neediness. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? I want to see. I want to see. And Jesus said, go, your faith has made you well. He recovered his sight and he followed Jesus. This is how we are to approach him out of our need. And the question is, do you have the eyesight to see your need? Or are you blind? Are you blind? You see the difference between his approach and, the, and James and John's approach? They asked, Lord, arrange it for me so that I can sit at your right hand and left hand in your glory. Jesus told them he couldn't do that. To sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it's for those from whom it has been prepared. And God the Father has prepared those seats. And Jesus can't go back and change what the Father has done. He can't grant that request. He wasn't going to grant it. But he did tell them something that was going to happen. The cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism of which I am baptized, you will be baptized. It doesn't mean that, that they were going to bear God's wrath. It meant they were going to follow in Jesus' footsteps through suffering and persecution. That's what those words meant. In our relationship with Christ, it's not a relationship between equals where we rub off on Jesus. He always rubs off on us. He doesn't follow in our footsteps. We follow his footsteps. He doesn't get on board with our agenda. We're going on board with his agenda. Notice that what happened when the blind man recovered his sight. He followed Jesus. We follow him. We follow him. You see, our convictions, our passions, and all our pursuits do not become his but it's the other way around. His convictions become your convictions. His passions become your passions. His life pursuits become your life pursuits. 
It's not arrange your life, Jesus, so I can have what I want to have. Lord, arrange my life so my life can get on board with yours. 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have con- concluded this, that the one, has, the one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him for their sake has died and was raised. We live for him. We live for him. And we follow him. What do you want Jesus to do for you? It's this. Continue to have mercy on me, Lord. Enable me to be more like you every day. Enable me to follow in your footsteps. And one of the ways he makes that happen is expressed in verses 42 through 45. He tells the disciples when they get into this argument about who's going to get what in his kingdom, he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And they great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever be great among you must be your servant. But whoever be first among you must be a slave to all. For even a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Following Jesus has been a servant like Jesus. A lead servant. And that's done through a spirit of humility. That's our prayer. When we go out this week, when we go tend to our business, and when Jesus asks you, what do you want me to do for you? It's not give me these seats of honor, but Lord, it's to have mercy on me and enable me to be a servant like you are serving. For a husband to be a servant to his wife, for a wife to be a servant to her husband. For siblings to be a servant to one another. For me to be a servant while I'm on my job with my coworkers. For me to be a servant within my church family. He says, if you want to be first, you'd be last. If you want to be great, you'd be a slave to all. And that takes humility. That comes from the spirit. And so if you're feeling convicted right now, don't beat yourself up. Just repent. And ask the Holy Spirit to empower you to do what you can't do. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to do it, be a servant, then be honest with him about that too. Say, Lord, you got to soften my hard heart because I don't want to do it. Yeah. And he'll do it. Because he's that gracious and he loves you that much. Yeah. He will never leave you where you are. He will always pursue, pursue you to the ends of the earth. He is sanctifying you, molding you into his image every day. And this table that we are about to partake of is a reminder of what Jesus ransomed for our sinful souls. <laughs>